Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Joined today by the number three ranked player in the world, Mr. John Rom. John, how are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Of though. course. Thanks for thanks for joining us. We're here at Players Championship Monday. Uh, last year was your first Players Championship experience. Mm-hmm. What was your first? What's your initial reaction to this course and this tournament? Well, I mean, to be honest, this course does not do justice on TV to how good it is in person. It's it's amazing to come here and just see the layout and and how pure everything is you know usually pga tour courses and pga tour events they do a great job with keeping it as neat as possible but man this place is something that is (laughs) it it steps it up a notch i mean it's comparable with augusta to how good everything looks it's amazing and then how hard it is really like you know it's not long you're not hitting drivers but it's tough Mm -hmm. you know that you have holes like number four where it's just an iron to the grid to the fairway and this the wedge but if you miss the fairway you're gonna have a hard time even hitting the green so it's you know it's uh it's really it's a great test of every aspect of your game, which is something that I think all pros love. I mean, it's a very well-deserved player championship title because you really need to be the best player this week. Yeah. I played out here a couple of weeks ago with a pro, and he said he, I was intimidated. We played the backs, and I'm intimidated, and he said, every shot out here looks harder than it actually is. So like every every like the fairways are kind of rounded a bit to make them look a little more narrow. The greens are shaped a little differently. Once he said that, I saw, I thought – I started seeing things a little more differently, so not <laughs> it looks pretty tough to me. I don't <laughs> That's know. The thing. What to it say. looks tough. It looks tough. It definitely plays tough. Well, too. there really, yeah, there really is some fairways that they look, like number two looks a lot narrower than it really is. But you just because you need to hit a draw, mm-hmm. I predominantly hit a fade, so probably just to my eye, it just looks a little different. That right? one overhanging tree on two is not pretty. Yeah, same same yeah, way. No, no. If I, if I make a tee box farther back, it would actually be easier for some people like mm-hmm. me. Just go over the trees and just you know don't worry about anything else. But yeah, it, it, yeah, I kind of there's some truth to that. Once you get down on the fairway, that actually is more room than you think. Mm-hmm. So I got to ask: Was the BMW Championship Pro Am last year was that the most fun you ever had during a pro am? It's yeah. It's, if, it's, <laughs> if it wasn't, it's uptight for the first. I mean, that was really fun. We we had a great day, honestly. And the group of guys we had, just to have you guys, and then someone like Ben Higgins, which <laughs> is not someone you have usually in pro am. You, know, you have a bachelor, and then Brian Erlocker. It's 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 a good combination of people. I had a great time. I loved it. It was funny to see reaction of like my friends. Like most of the females were like, "Oh, well, you play with Ben Higgins," and most of the guys were like, "You play with Brian Erlacher. That's sweet." And it was funny. <laughs> the like the questions that you know uh, that Erlacher was asking Ben Higgins were very different than the ones you you were watching because you're a fan of The Bachelor. No, well, my girlfriend's a fan, <laughs> and she watches every single episode. And sometimes I've had for whatever reason i've had had to watch a couple episodes so sure sure and uh and i knew a little bit about it i it's just it's a couple things you want to know an answer to and brian was a little more direct than the rest of us but uh <laughs> you i guess i guess when you're about to become a hall of famer you're you know you're entitled to ask whatever you want do you remember what like one of your first questions you asked him was or the one you were dying to ask him oh the stupidest thing yeah so it was like the one the one thing i really wanted to ask is because in all this date they have this amazing meal that looks incredible, <laughs> and they never take a bite of it. 
I'm like, I always tell my girlfriend, I'm like, I could not be the bachelor. Like, I'll be like, hold up, I'm gonna try the steak real quick. <laughs> okay, keep going. Like, and then he explained how they make the setup, everything look pretty, and they have the food there for two hours or even more uh, beforehand, so it's not even edible at the point. But I was just, every time I see an episode, I'm like, why are they not eating? <laughs> now you know. Like, why? Everything's everything on camera is all fake, so that's why they, that's why they never eat. It. How much American football do you watch? How familiar with with you were than with Brian Urlacher? Well, I mean, there's there's certain names that just come up to mind, right? And 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 Brian is one of them. Uh, it's I, I didn't know American football really until I came to the states five years ago. So it's not like uh, my knowledge is that extent, but I do follow obviously ASU being an ASU alumni, and then uh, I love watching playoffs in any sport. To be honest, just. Uh, I don't follow regular season just because I don't have a favorite team. I have some favorite players and, and whatnot, but the playoffs is always fun to watch. You know, it feels like every sport just turns it up a couple notches, and you know it's incredibly fun to watch. And football is one of them. I used to I used to live in Europe, and I didn't realize how complicated the rules of American football were until I tried to explain them to people. Okay. Are you able to pick up on the rules, or do you are you kind of like half in, half out on all the rules? No, I, I know I know the rules. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be able to be a ref or anything yeah. like that, but I can obviously, I, I understand what's going on, I understand the penalties, but it's it's hard to when you first come over, you know, as soccer fans, right? I'm going to say soccer. It, it, it's, it's very different, and it's never explained. You know you have the first down, second down, third down, and fourth down, and all that, but you just don't really understand the other rules. Uh, you know, when we watch it, we relate it to rugby, right? So I'm like, how about you just, you know, you headlock that guy, you put him down. <laughs> uh, you can't do that. And then, you know, it, it was very, very hard for me to understand what holding was, what pass, pass interference was. I'm like, okay, how do you know what the difference is, right? It's just... Uh, but once you know you watch a couple games, it's it's easy to follow it. It's mm -hmm. not. It's once you know the basic rules, it's not that hard to to understand what's going on. So you're from Barica, Spain. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? Okay, in the Basque country, just yeah. north of uh, Bilbao, right? Bilbao, yeah. Am I saying it right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so take us there for those of us that have never been there. <laughs> what's the town like? What is it known for? Is it a beach town? Take us to your to your hometown in Spain. Well, the the, the Basque country, it's it's a bit of everything in the sense that topography is very rough but it's right on the coast. So you can get an amazing beach, but, you know, right behind it, you can have the craziest mountains too, which is, you know, it's a little un uh, unusual to what, you know, the rest of the world should be. But where I live, you can kind of make it similar to La Jolla. Okay. Because it's a town where it, it kind of rises into a cliff. So there is there there is a couple of good beaches over there. There's a couple of good ones. There's a new one too, if someone's interested. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of those in Europe. Uh, well, yeah, true. It's a little true. different. It, they actually recorded some episodes of Game of Thrones in my town, which is, I don't know what it says about it. I don't know. It might look medieval. I don't know. It's <laughs> just, but, it, it, you know, it's rough because it's just a big, whole big mountain, what it is. It's a small town. It's not big. There's about 1,200 people that live in it. Uh, there's probably more trees and animals than people, uh, but it's getting a little more civilized. People are realizing how when you're on the top of the cliff, if you're able to build a house, it's an amazing view. I mean, it, it's comparable to me in mind to make a situation uh, to Torre Pines in La Jolla area that, you know, when you have that cliff and then that amazing view to the to the ocean. Uh, but also, you know, it's it's also known as a fisherman uh let's say community mm -hmm. right there's a lot of a lot of towns in the next to the, in the ocean and it's easy it's, you know fishing is easy access uh, it's fresh fish almost every day it really it really is nice in that sense but since you have that topography and the bad weather which is like being in portland it rains eight months a year it's cold it's great for uh it's great to grow some high quality meat as well you know every every cow is almost every cow is grass-fed every animal is grass-fed it's it lives in the wild and you get you know both high quality meat and high quality fish with it's kind of unusual and 
talking about food since I love food. Culinary, talking about the culinary world, it because of that that makes in the fresh the freshness of the ingredients. You know, food is really good in in, in the Basque country, not only where I live, but just the whole Basque country area. So it's just uh, I think somebody told me for like x amount of miles radius or whatever is the highest concentration of Michelin star restaurants really in the world. Yeah, interesting. And what's the wine culture like up there? Are so you... wine wine is just south of the Basque Country. It's okay. called Rioja for people that know. It's just the province uh, right underneath, and it's about a, an hour and a half drive, two hours from where I live. I mean, it's just filled. It's a little more dry, and it's just filled with vineyards, mm-hmm. filled and filled and filled with vineyards, and then just. It will be a little more southwest, which in Spain, nothing really is far compared to the States, but to us, as far away. It will be a six-hour drive. It's what's called Riviera del Duero, which is, for people that know, uh, Vega Sicilia is one of the ones that's very better known outside Spain. So, uh, you know, nothing really is too far, but for us, if you live there, it is far. Mm -hmm. What's the golf culture like up there? Man, so I think not as... Uh, th- there's there's more golf coming in right now uh but but there's not there wasn't much going on you know where, where i live there's two golf courses there were two golf courses up until not too long ago within reach uh one 20 minutes away one 10 minutes away but uh unfortunately uh well my family was never into golf right so it's not like uh we were already members so you know family members or anything you had to get your way in and it's always hard to get into a golf course that's private so uh my dad joined the golf course that's an hour away uh, and that's, you know, that's... And you, so you drove an hour each way to go play golf as a kid? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so basically, uh, I would drive, we would drive, uh, yeah, so, I mean, we live at like 8 in the morning, get there at 9 and leave about 6, because, you know, you eat late dinners in Spain, so it's like it makes <laughs> a big of a difference, but yeah, it's, uh, that's where it is, but nowadays, uh, I do get access to some of the golf courses closer to me, uh, so you know that helps out to be able to practice when I'm there instead of having to drive one hour. But it got to a point, Dream. Once I became good at golf, before I went to Madrid for a special golf program, where my parents rented an apartment on the tenth hole of the golf course, which is about 50 yards from the chip and putting green, so we could stay there over the weekend for me to be able to practice more and for them to play as well. So. Uh, we wouldn't have to drive down <laughs> every yeah. single day, which kind of made it a little hard to go back and forth every time. When did you go to Madrid for the golf school? Last two years of high school. Okay. It's it it's a program run by the Spanish Golf Federation, and they basically pick uh, whatever they think is the best six players that year and the best six uh, women that year. Uh, and my actually the first year I went, it was just when golf got admitted into the Olympic and as an Olympic sport again. So we got to got included into Olympic committee which means we went to this, uh, let's say, dorm room. It was, mm-hmm. mo- it was more, almost like a hotel, but it was more this dorm room where almost every Olympic athlete who wanted could be there. So we had, I mean, and we went to high school basically designed for, for, for those sports. Like nobody outside could go in. It was it was at just for, for the Olympic athletes. So in my class, you know, I had Olympic canoers, Olympic gymnasts. I had people in class that had actually been in the Olympics, which was pretty cool. So... Uh, with that run by Federation, it was two years of my life where I could actually practice a lot more golf. Because like I said before, home, I'd have a 30-minute lesson on Tuesday. And then until Friday, I wouldn't touch a club again. So just being able to go there and practice Monday through Saturday, it was a big change uh, for golf and me in that sense. Hmm. So during this time period, were you competing at all on like a world amateur stage? Did you know where your game stood amongst amateurs at all? When was when was the first time uh, you really compared yourself to people around the world or were competing against the others uh, around the world? Well, 
I wouldn't really leave Europe. We never, you know, we had a lot of good European events. And during the year, since you're in school, you can't really leave that sure. much, right? Uh, my parents would rather have me in school. And the Spanish Federation was, you know, also emphasizing that having a good education was important. So it's not like we ever left far away. And when we were done with school in summer, it was basically every single good European event is in summer. So we never left uh, Europe in any sense. Some people who come to the States to the Orange Bowl and do, and, and do run and all that in, in winter, but my family could never afford something like that. And we never knew how big, how much of an impact it could get make in your career. So I had no idea. I think the first international experience that I had is when I played what's called the Michael Bonalak Trophy, which is uh, Europe against Asia and Pacific. It's kind of like a Ryder Cup type deal, mm -hmm. President's Cup type deal. And uh, on that team, we have Hideki Matsuyama, who had already won the Asian Amateur twice. He played in the Masters twice, and he was about to turn pro, and a couple other really good players. So that was my first really world experience. But I was 16 at the time, so it was a little different to, mm -hmm. you know, when you played against these people you see on TV, and I was just a 16-year-old. So it was a little, uh, a little, a little one, one, of it, one of those times where it was eye-opening for me. And right after that, a couple months after, is when I came to the States. So... It wasn't really until I came to the States when I saw where my game was at uh, and how much I had improved. Was that when you came to the States, was that to go to college? Was that your first time coming to the States? Or oh, had God, you, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, so. that, that story is quite unique, too. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't think I've done anything usual in my life. It's nothing <laughs> it doesn't like, sound like it. it. Uh, no, it just never happened like that. Uh, no, I came into school with the school year started. Uh, never made an official visit, never had been in the States before. I just left Barica, Spain. And landed in Arizona. How did you end up at Arizona State? What was that recruiting process? Well, the, the thing is, I I was playing a European under-18 championship, what they called the boys' championship for us as, as juniors here, right? And uh, on the mat, on the stroke play qualifier, I was I was just playing, I think it was the eighth hole we were in, uh, in Czech Republic. And I see a coach that said, you know, uh, from the University of San Francisco. Now, my grandma had just been in San Francisco. And me, not knowing any of the NCAA rules, honestly, I, I had no clue. I had no idea that a coach couldn't talk to me, right? But since I approached him, apparently that's legal or not, I don't know. So I talked to him and I, we talked a little bit and he decided to follow me. And I ended up shooting six under on the back nine to finish second on the stroke play. And then we ended up winning the tournament, right? Spain won it. So that's how I got introduced into U.S. golf. And I got an uh, offer scholarship from University of San Francisco. Uh, but they made a mistake with my age and they wanted me to stay one year in Spain to then come afterwards so we were planning on that and whatever I didn't have any other offers and then a guy called Ricardo Relenque working for the Spanish Golf Federation was in the States trying to have a guy transfer from Iowa State to Arizona State uh, for whatever reason uh, thankfully for me he had decided not to do it and stayed in Iowa State so Tim had an open spot and Ricardo told Tim, hey, you should check out this guy. He wants to come to the stage right now. He's committed to uh, University of San Francisco, but they want him to wait a year, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I think at the time I was 14th in the world rankings. Uh, I was top five in Europe, and nobody in the States had any idea who I was about, uh, who I was. So without meeting me, without ever talking to me, without really anything, um, Tim sent me. Uh, Tim Mickelson, that is, yeah. Tim Mickelson, yeah. Tim ended up sending me uh, an offer. And uh, they sent me a two-year offer, and then the rest depending on academics and, and golf. And, uh, you know, to us, really, it was a no-brainer. Once I, I looked into Arizona State and saw how good of a school was, there was, uh, there was a Spanish golfer, a girl over there, uh, who was going to be able to help me out. And, you know, the, the Spanish tradition was pretty big over there, and they all did really, really well. So I was like, well, 
let's get a, re a reason why and uh never met anybody in arizona never met nothing any n nothing at all yeah i committed to arizona state and uh yeah like my dad says he dropped me off at the airport and he didn't know if i was in moscow sydney <laughs> johannesburg he just got a text from me hey i'm with tim good to go and it, it was very different to to what i expected that experience was so different to anything because like i said this dorm room i was in spain it was like a hotel sure they would clean the room for us we had a laundry it, it, it was basically like a hotel so when i got to a dorm in the states where you take care of your room it's a little different it, it was a very 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 eye-opening experience in the sense that i was like okay i'm gonna have to do a lot more about myself here rather than people helping me out so you know i think being able to go to arizona state was helpful but yeah grow up pretty quick then in that situation well, yeah, especially yeah. because of visa purposes and how late every because may because because coach mickelson approached me in may that was two or three months before i had to go to school and luckily i had already taken the sats so but you know still getting the visa is a long process so it, it took a while uh and uh, again i landed with the school year already started i had no idea what was going on never been in a campus before and didn't know what college was about i hadn't i started from zero and i had to pick up as quick as possible and what was your english like at that time non-existent really non-existent i mean I was, was that intimidating going to a country where you didn't speak the language i was oblivious to be honest really i was completely oblivious uh it's meaning you thought that you could get by with spanish when you when you no, arrived I, th I thought my english was gonna be good enough okay but i never picked up on let's say the english the the american accent because what we learned was british or uk english so there was a lot of a lot of words that were different, a lot of idioms, just a lot of phrases that were very different to what I was used to, and just the pronunciation of words was very different to what I was used to. So you know, it, it took a while to be able to to communicate properly. I always now after the fact, it took me about two or three months to be able to carry on a conversation properly. I did not understand a single joke for a better part of two years, and it wasn't up until my junior year where I could actually make jokes. Okay. Because my the Spanish humor was different mm -hmm. to the American humor, and being able to say what I meant in a way that made sense in the states was very difficult as well. So it took it took a while for me to be able to actually be funny. Was it, how many years of English did you take growing up in school? Were you, like did you take it for a long period of time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the 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 English system in it's very in, different in most uh, Spanish schools is horrible. Basically, every year, the first day of school, present simple. No matter if you're 10 or 18, literally every year is the same thing. Yeah. So you're not really going to learn. So I did extra uh, I did extra classes of English uh, in outside schools that were independent, and that's kind of how I got a little better. But I thought it was okay. Like I could communicate in the, communicate in the UK. It was just coming to the States where mm -hmm. it was a little different. It was, it was a little harder to, to get used to, a lot of a much faster pace when it comes to speaking english a little harder to understand the pronunciation was a little different for me so it took yeah. a while i mean let me tell you when i got to my first class macroeconomic principles and there was 365 people in class and it looked like a movie theater for me i cannot believe it <laughs> the teacher is speaking with a microphone i did not understand a single word i think i i changed like half of my classes my first semester really? just to be able to go to smaller classes where i could actually understand what people were saying to me wow no i think every time i go to spain i i think that my spanish oh i got this i, I can handle this you know then you you speak with a native speaker and it's totally different your understanding is different you have to right. have a thought process but i remember reading somewhere where you also learned english through through rap music is that true or is that over over sensationalized a no, little bit? no i mean it's it's I think it, 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 you know, it's a good headline, and people like to use yeah, it. Yeah, that's what sense. I thought. <laughs> no, uh, it's not like I learned English. It's it helped out with uh, enunciation and pronunciation a lot. 
uh, and just being able to to carry on a conversation in English and with being able to process everything in English. It helped it helped it helped out with that, you know, just being yeah. able to memorize those words and being able to pronounce those words properly in a fast pace helped me out with being able to carry on with the conversation a lot better. Uh, it's not like I learned English. It's not like you can learn good English by listening to rap music. Right. <laughs> a lot of grammar mistakes, but uh, I, it did help me out with being able to, to just, you know, at least understand a lot of cultural things, a lot of just keywords, a lot of slang that I didn't understand. Because it was the first time I remember freshman year, and this is true. My teammate can tell you. I was talking to my teammate Alberto Sanchez, and and he was trying to have me do something. Like I don't know if he was. I don't know where he was trying to go. And and he and he just goes, looks at me, is like, "Come on, dog, let's do this." And I'm like, "Don't call me dog. I'm not a dog. I mean, what are you?" Ta-? And I actually, got really mad. Yeah. And he's like, "Hey, man, like, dog is like, dude, like, buddy, like, like, chill out, like, it's good." And I'm like, "All right, okay." <laughs> it's just. It was like it's little things like that that yeah. I was able to just keep up with. But mm-hmm. now I didn't learn English just by listening to rap music. You yeah, can't okay. learn English by listening to Kendrick Lamar or <laughs> Jay Z. You're not going to. At least not good English. Right. Know? It's not like it's. Uh, but but yeah, it helped out just being able to to learn how to just pronounce it and process English yeah. a little better. Many of you already have an Odyssey putter in the bag, or at the very least, you have played an Odyssey putter before, but you've never owned or seen one that performs like EXO. That's E-X-O. This is the new line from Odyssey. It represents the next level of putting technology, combining years of putting innovations from the design team behind the number one putters in golf. EXO putters are incredibly forgiving thanks to three ultra-high MOI head designs. Advanced multi-material construction of the classic number seven, the Rossi, and the Indianapolis head shapes deliver tremendous distance control, remarkable accuracy, and unbelievable forgiveness. And in addition, they have paired the micro hinge roll technology to create the white hot micro hinge insert. This is the industry standard for feel. I know you guys know about white hot. Uh, This insert is designed to quickly send the ball on its intended line and stay on that line. All three of these XO head shapes are now available for pre-order, and they hit stores on May 18th. Tron has already got it in the bag, and he is raving about it. It's got me slightly concerned about the BMW Charity Pro-Am next week, but not all that concerned. Head over to odysseygolf.com to get yours today and start holding more putts. Now back to John Rahm. Was there anything that what surprised you about American culture? What, what's something? Probably the classroom size was one of the first things. But like, what, when you got here, what were you like? Whoa, this is way different. Ah, uh, again, I was so oblivious to everything. I yeah. just, I'm a person who adapts really quickly. So, uh, the one thing that really struck, like, you know, was it was amazing for me to see was in all those classes that I was that were big. I was trying to hide trying to like never be picked to talk in front of all these people never i never wanted to talk to anybody you know like i didn't want and everybody was just raising their hand trying to give their opinion talking and just how publicly how brave everybody was and i was like god i'm like if i'm that you know i come from a class in spain that we were 15 to 20 people nobody wanted to raise their hand like nobody wanted to talk so like to go to a class where everybody was trying to participate it it was real eye-opening you know it took Mm -hmm. me a while to get used to that but at the end, you know, it helps out. It's a little different. I think it's just the, you know, a little more confidence in the uh, in the American way. I'll say. Yeah. No, it's fascinating background. I've always wanted to hear it, hear the whole story, like in your words. But for not to not to move to golf because this has been great. But what uh, was there any doubt, kind of where your game stood when you got here? Did you did you know that you could compete at a really high level at Arizona State, or was that a giant question mark? Well, I've always had an extreme amount of confidence in myself, uh, and I knew I could do it. But when I got to the team. 
I thought, great, I'm going to have at least maybe one or two years, at least one, where I'm going to be able to learn from somebody on the team. And, you know, they're going to be number one, two, and three, and I'll be maybe lucky if I make the team, whatever. That's what I was thinking, right? I'll be able to learn. And uh, little did I know that as soon as I got there, we played quarterfinal days, I was playing as number one player on the team. I was like, how does this even make sense? Like, I was trying to get there to learn, and right away I had to be a leader, which it was not what I expected in my mind. So, uh, golf-wise, I knew I could make it. It's just uh, I was used to, you know, playing in Spain and having a bad tournament and finishing 10th. If I came to the States and had a bad tournament, I was going to finish 30th or 40th. So that was, you know, tightening a little, you know, my golf game as much as possible. You know, it helps out when your first round in college is 81. It woke you up a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, started with an 81, played horrible, and uh, woke me up real good. Yeah. So you you turned that career into 11 wins, your second to only fill in Arizona State history. Yeah, best right-hander to ever play in Arizona State. <laughs> you played in the 2015 Waste Management as an amateur and finished fifth. Mm-hmm. And that was your first taste of professional golf, am I second. right? It second. I, I played in Mayakoba just a couple months before. Okay, that was a little different than probably playing it in Phoenix, I would okay, imagine. Oh, yeah, it's very different, yeah. <laughs> so I want to know, like, when you get to that tournament, when you're on the range, who who did you see on that range, or who did you see and were kind of starstruck, like, oh, I'm well, actually here? Everybody, basically. Yeah? But, but Tiger was playing right. that year, and uh, looking at Tiger, like, I couldn't hit balls because Tiger was hitting balls behind me. Yeah? And I was like, it was just like, I hit a ball, I wouldn't look at mine, I would just look at him, like, <laughs> what is he doing? <laughs> And unfortunately for all of us, that was the time where he was struggling with his short game and he didn't play good. So, uh, you know, he wasn't he wasn't having as much fun as he could have. Uh, but then I was trying to look at everybody, to be honest. You know, nobody knew me and I knew everybody on their range. I was just looking at what everybody was doing. I was talking probably to every tour rep that was there. I'm like, well, what do you have there? What do you have there? What do you have there? Because, like, you know, I just go with my golf bag, put it down. I have no gadgets, nothing. I just I've always been a person who doesn't. Tinker a lot. I don't have any tools. I don't think. I just don't do them. You know, I just Mm -hmm. go putt, go to a tee. That's it. And I see all these people practicing with, you know, lines and this and the chalk and all these things. And I'm like, holy cow, do I have to do this? And uh, luckily they didn't do it. But nobody knows that first, that that Phoenix Open, I actually had a stomach bug. I didn't eat much all week. I would like go play golf, go back to to the house and just stay in the couch. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows that I was actually sick. Yeah. Did you put a jersey on in that in that uh, an Arizona State jersey on in 2015? I know you do it I now. Did, I, no, I did it every day. Yeah, every day, even yeah. back then. Okay. Yeah, but nobody nobody really. <laughs> you were, I was gonna say you were still pretty animated back then, if yeah, I remember right. I, I was never able to make a birdie, but I did it every day, and it was pretty cool. On Sunday, when I was kind of close to the lead, I hit it to 10 feet on that back left pin, and that was pretty cool for mm-hmm. me. You know, I was really amped up, and they got really really loud. So you know, I have a couple of videos remembering that moment. I didn't make the putt. But, you know, just that shot and how nuts yeah. it went, it, it was pretty cool. So you turned pro after the U.S. Open in 16. You were you forego your entrance into the Open Championship. Was there? I'm guessing the main reason behind that was you probably had sponsors, exemptions lined up and wanted to go for a special temporary membership. Is that I, right? I had six invites yeah. in all basically all the events I could play. And uh, my goal was to get my tour card in those six events. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew all these strategies had come close a year before. So if I didn't get my tour card, at least maybe get enough so I can get to the web.com playoffs. That was my mindset. Okay. And so you were dead set on you wanted a PGA Tour career right out of college. Like that yeah. European Tour, PGA Tour, there wasn't no, a, a decision no. to make. You wanted a PGA Tour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it was the biggest opportunity. And if you can make it, it's, you know, I mean, you're playing the best golf courses in the world. The money, the purses are very different you know when you're in europe there's a lot of traveling you know it's it's, a, it's more than european tour is a world tour there's mm-hmm. so much where you're going so i wanted to start on pga tour and then move over to european tour and luckily i was able to do that in within i think 
eight months. That was a member of both tours. So and winning on both of them, you moved over. In that was style, within a so, year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was that was not expected. But yeah, that yeah. was my mindset. I was trying to do PGA Tour first. So you won in January 2017 the Farmers Insurance, and even in your short time out there, you were you were knocking at the door. You were close, but were you surprised to have won that quickly, or did you figure out pretty quickly like, hey, I've I've got the game to win out here? Well, I mean, my first pro start, uh, I was I was contending for the lead sure you know i led the tournament all throughout the first three rounds uh and i was contending for the lead quick and loans is that right yes yep. and if it wasn't for my lip out on 15 and that flyer on 17 maybe you know story would have been a different a little different but i'm actually glad i didn't win that one because that gave me experience and i learned there and i applied that in the canadian open which i almost won as well I had an eagle putt to tie the lead and i missed it and i was one off and i i, I kind of promised myself next time i was in contention it was i was going to get it done and luckily for me, it wasn't that far afterwards when I got to Torrey Pines and actually had a chance to win and got it done. I mean, it's just, I don't know why. I pro- I promised myself and I ended up doing it. Hmm. So tell me about your relationship with your caddy, Adam Hayes. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys get introduced to each other and what, what's your guys' relationship like? So he, he was working for Russell Henley right before me, I think. And I, and I was talking and we talked to Bones. And I kind of gave him my criteria. I'm like, listen, I'm a very serious person when it comes to business. So I want somebody who's committed, that's not going to go out, drink, and show up tired the next day. I want a professional, somebody with experience. But at the same time, you know, from shot to shot, we need to laugh, you know, just do whatever. And he, uh, and they, you know, he said, well, this guy's going to be perfect for you. And we, we ended up talking to each other, and uh, and he he agreed to to work with me, and we started in. In uh, at Save We Open in twenty seven and twenty sixteen, so I, uh, that's why it was funny when when Bones and Phil had split that people were the rumors started flying nah, that, that nah, and, nah, and I was like, wait a second, Bones kind of helped set the two of you guys yeah, up. Listen, I the, knew the, that the rumors go the same. <laughs> the rumors just go wild, you know. It's people amazing. would also say in the Phoenix Open that I was turning pro afterwards, <laughs> and I'm like, where do people? I'm get like this? on Monday, I'm flying to Hawaii to play with the team. So like, how is this? <laughs> like, how was saying I haven't said anything like this? So like. There's always going to be somebody, you know, something. I had to call Adam about that, too, because I'm like, hey, man, just so you know, this is not true. Like, yeah. I'm not going anywhere. I luckily got probably the best caddy I could ever get for me and my personality, mm-hmm. you know. It's just we're both equally as aggressive, so it kind of works out. We never back down from a challenge. It's great for both of us. So you went over to Europe last summer. You went over to France, finished 10th, and then you won the Irish Open mm-hmm. in, in style. So had you did you have a lot of Lynx golf experience before uh, winning at Port Stewart? That win could not be any more unexpected. Yeah. Yeah, I did not expect to win that tournament, <laughs> and especially the way I did it. Uh, I did have Lynx, uh, golf Lynx experience, but I never played good. Really? I don't know why I think every time I went to the UK, it was just a time in my life where I was playing bad for whatever reason. I don't know why. It just happened that way. And uh, this week, it is a Lynx golf course, but it's a little different. You know, there's not there wasn't as many bunkers of the tee, which that freaked me out a little bit. And the rough wasn't as thick, and, you know, there was a lot of people watching, so it was trampled down. So we, I was hitting a lot of drivers. Mm-hmm. And me and Adam were trying to be smart. We're like, okay, which side of the fairway do we need to favor in order in case we miss a shot? We can, you know, miss in the rough, we still have a shot. So I think I missed really smart that week. Uh, every time I missed in the rough, it was down grain. I always had a shot for the pin. And, uh, you know, all that added with a phenomenal putting week. I mean, the amount of putts I made that week was incredible. Uh, you know, it ended up being what it ended up being. That's why I followed you for a couple of days that week, actually. And I, I actually charted how often you were missing to, like, fat sides of the pin and stuff. And you were just, <laughs> you were, you missed, you were, like, out of position, like, three times or something in the course of three days. But yeah. I remember you guys were teeing off on seven. It says dog leg right, mm-hmm. par five. 
and uh, Adam's picking out, he's like, a, a line at the TV tower, and you saw a line that was a different TV tower that was even further right of that. Do you remember this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you had a downwind, and you were just playing so aggressive, cutting corners, and like, you well, were just... Th- was that the first, second, or third day? I don't remember. I don't remember. I think it was the first day when I made Eagle, okay. when I absolutely smoked it. And I'm like, that TV tower? is like, well, I meant the other one. But it's okay. <laughs> And it's dead center of the throw, and they have an eight iron in. So, like, yeah. yeah. From day on, we're like, okay, we can go for the right. We're yep. good to go. Perfect. Yep. Gas pedal was down there. So Yeah, we were – I mean, we were not – we we actually – the greens were so flat that week, if you realize. There were maybe once – but there were not many undulations, and we were like, if you just hit the center of the green mm-hmm. and you have 30 feet, you're going to make some putts. Mm-hmm. And I made a lot of 30, 40-footers that week. So I, I had followed you around a couple months prior to that at the Memorial. And I think when I met you, oh, I actually boy. talked to you about this. So. Oh. God, that week was bad. I, I was not hitting it good that week. That you week. were not hitting it great. You were paired with Ricky, and there was just kind of like a lot of lot going on in that pairing, a lot of commotion. You weren't playing well. And it looked to me like the crowd kind of got to you a little bit, and you you were kind of boiling over with a, with uh, with some anger. Do uh, you – and I, this is kind yeah. of a documented thing that people talk about your, your kind of the way you try to channel anger on the golf course. I think part of it, if I'm looking objectively, is what makes you a great player is you have this kind of spirited nature. But is there anything you kind of – do to address some some temper issues you may have in your game <laughs> you know the, the funny part is sometimes uh when players get mad they blame their caddies in my case for whatever reason i just blame the crowd <laughs> i don't know why i just i blame it on somebody else because you know as players it's never our fault so like, of course well you have to blame it on somebody it's not always the crowd uh-huh. sometimes we know we just missed the shot we made a oh, stupid yeah. thing and we need an out and that's a lot of times how, how i've done it, especially early in my career because I got to the spotlight, let's say, so quick that I didn't know how to deal with those things. And that was one of those weeks, you know. We got to of Memorial, course. Ricky's loved everywhere, and there's so many people there, and I didn't know how to deal with this. I was just blaming it on the amount of people there. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it's, it's not my fault. It's never my fault, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm, you know, in, in that sense, I'm just an emotional player. Where it, I'll, You know, people obviously, it, it's easy to point out the bad, but the, whenever something's good, my reaction is always great as well. So it's just, you know, it kind of... It balances mm-hmm. out. But, yeah, it, it is, you know, something has gotten out of hand. Uh, and that is just uh, something I need to work on. You know, it's something that is constantly when I need to work on. And I don't think it's been that bad since Memorial last year. You know, I, I'm trying to try to work on it slowly. I don't want to be, make a drastic change because there's been, there's been tournaments where I get to the course and I say, okay, I'm not going to get mad. And I don't get mad. I'm really happy and I play horrible. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let's let's start by playing good and then, you know, work right. on it to, to make it better. So, yeah, it's it's a slow process, but it, it does get better each and every day. There's sometimes there's setbacks, you know, you need to make mistakes to get better, but but it is it is getting every day. And, and I work on it. You know, there's, there's a lot of techniques we're working on, so hopefully there'll be one day when uh, – when maybe there's no, you know, there's right. not anything to talk about. <laughs> it's uh, ho- hopefully it comes soon. I could see the difference. Granted, you won, you won obviously in Ireland, but the difference in those two months, obviously your your whole demeanor and everything on the golf course was totally different. So oh, yeah. it uh, it and you and I actually talked about it last year in Akron. That was your exact reaction. It was like, oh, Memorial, that was a tough one. So oh, it was so bad. <laughs> it, I was playing so bad. I was tired. I was for you know I played a lot of and, golf. So it was just. Uh, you know, and it, it like me. I think it perspective on everything you've talked about, just with all you've been, you're 23, you're 23, right? Yeah, right? 23. Like all you've been through up to this point, it's so easy to forget how old you are, you know, and in, in where you are in, in the process of all these things. So, well, you know, it's, it, I understand it though. You know, golf is, you know, golf is used to some, let's say, some etiquette and some, yep. some standard, but the game is changing. And I think, you know, uh, Every player is guilty of it in some way. Tigers, I mean, Tigers no, no, throwing, but play, like, you know. What I'm saying is that I think everybody loves the good reactions. Oh, of course. Right? But 
if everybody has a good reaction or reacts like that to a good thing, he's going to have the same one to a bad one. You know, I'm not like DJ. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be like DJ. But when I make a putt to win, like in Tory, I'm going to react. When I make, when I hole out like a number four in Ireland, I'm going to react. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whenever something good happens, I'm going to react. Uh, the same way when something bad happens, uh, I'm going to have a reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be better or worse, but I will have a reaction. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who tell me that's what it makes entertaining to watch me. You know, you're going to like it more or less, uh, but, you know, it's something I, I I am working on and need to work on to keep yeah. it a little bit more under control. No, I appreciate your perspective on that willingness to talk about that. But uh, you, how challenging is it for a player like you to kind of make a schedule out between the U.S. tour and the European tour? It's hard. It's hard. What yeah. What are the hardest decisions, hardest weeks? Or? Well, you know, the, the, the great thing, as, you know, when I turned pro, they had just come out with the Rolex Series events. So in that sense, I focused it on that, which... It makes it easier for me, but otherwise, you just need to kind of see what tournaments in the PGA Tour I'm not willing to give up. Uh, for example, the West Coast Swing is something I'm not willing to give up because I love that type of golf and I play good in it. Uh, which you know that kind of contradict uh, conflicts with Dubai, which is also something where where I want to play someday. So it, it's just it's just hard. And then I also figure you know the best weather in Europe to go to is going to be in summer. So I try to play more there in summer. That's why I go over to France and Ireland. Uh, but then. You get to a point after the U.S. Open that you have no control of a European tour schedule, like or PJ Tour. There's just so many WGC majors in a row that you just can't say no to all of those. And then we have the FedEx Cup, and then this year there's a Ryder Cup if I play. So there's just so much that you need to take into consideration. So I try to play some before summer, and then something, uh, some tournaments at the end of the year. But with uh, the schedule change next year, maybe it allows me to play a lot more events. Uh, you know, in the middle of the year in Europe. It's just it's just something I need to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, you view those schedule changes as a positive thing for a player like you with the players moving I up? I don't know yet. Net, yeah, it's hard to tell. Exactly. I just know the players uh, is going to be earlier and there's not going to be any any majors in August, which is great. The FedEx Cup is going to finish a lot earlier, which actually it opens up the schedule for me to be able to go Europe a little more. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say it's a positive. Great. You finished fourth at Augusta this year. This is your first time being in contention at a major. Did that feel totally different than being in contention on the P- like a normal PGA Tour event? No. No? No. Once, I mean, it is Augusta, it is all that, but once I get to the golf course, no matter what tournament it is, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess you are aware sometimes, uh, once I hit that ball on 15, I was really aware I just lost the Masters. I was very aware of that. That was not a great feeling, but, uh, you know, before that, I was just full-on pedal like I always play. You know, I was just really trying to, at the end of the day, I'm trying to win a golf tournament. It wasn't until that moment where I realized, like, man, there goes the Masters. <laughs> Did you draw on any previous major championship experience? Like the first few majors you played, were you more nervous than usual and kind of drew on that at Augusta? Well, the thing is, I mean, the first few majors I played, I was extremely aware that I was playing a major. For and sure. I was making... I was changing my routine, doing different things, practicing more, like thinking I had to do more to win a major. And what I did this year, I actually went to Augusta a week earlier and played Monday and Tuesday with some of the tour pros, and then I stayed the week there. I was trying to make it so going to Augusta National seemed as normal as possible. And at that point, I had played so much that it just seemed normal. You know, I mm-hmm. just kept doing it, and I, I was so familiar. Uh, you know, I think it's always... I've, I talked with Phil about this, right? You need to find your formula in a major. Uh, Jack Nicklaus loved taking the week off and spending some time there as as much as Tiger. Phil likes playing the week before. So, you know, you just need to find your formula. Uh, I've played the week before and I have not played the week before and so far not playing the week before has helped out in my case. So, you know, we'll see if it, if it keeps working. Uh, that might be the, what I have to do. If not, you know, I might just do some adjustments. Uh, but 
what everybody says, you just need to treat it as normal as possible. Cool. All right, last one. We'll get you out of here. Uh, talking about Ryder Cup 2018, you mm-hmm. mentioned that you took up European Tour membership. I imagine that had something to do with you know wanting to be on part of those Ryder Cup oh, teams. Yeah, definitely. How far along in the process are you? You're you're a lock for the team. Are you talking about pairings already? Have there been team oh. meetings or anything like that? Or listen, I'm not. I mean, you you can always assume there's about five players that are playing, right? You yeah. know, Rory's playing. You know, Rosie's playing. You know, Stenson's playing. At this point, you know, Poulter's playing. Sergio's playing, right? You got five. If I'm forgetting somebody, I'm sorry. Yeah. But then. Based on rankings, you got Tommy Fleetwood, Terrell Hatton, Alex Noren, Rafa, me, and uh, some other players are out there over there in the bubble. So uh, I don't. I try not to get too far ahead of myself. Uh, I guess when it gets closer to the time, uh, I will ask questions to wherever I need to ask questions. But parents, I mean, I'm just an easygoing person. Mm-hmm. I can I can play with anybody, to be honest. I think uh, whoever they put me with, I'll get along great and I'll be able to play with them. I'm not. I don't have a problem in that sense, but. Uh, you know, I just hope I can manage my nerves that week because I know it's unlike anything you ever play. Even Rory told me it's gonna be completely different to what you usually play. So, be ready. And I'm like, okay, how am I gonna be ready? So it's just, you know, I think the tournaments leading up to it, like in the FedEx Cup, where all these great players will be there, uh, or hopefully all, you know, most of the European players will be there. I'll be able to, you know, uh, feed off of them and and ask them and all that. Because at the end of the day, those regular events we play they're doing their job as well. You know, I don't want to go up to the range and be like, hey, man, let me bother you for a couple of minutes. Sure. I, I never do that. So unless I play with them, uh, I, I'm not going to ask many questions. With Rory, since I played with him in the Masters with Rory, I did ask him a few of them. Uh, he did try to help me out. But like everybody, the answer is the same. Even Thomas Bjorn told me, listen, enjoy tournaments, play good, and whenever the Ryder Cup gets there, we'll talk about it. Yeah. And I'm like, great, thanks. <laughs> Got it. All right, see ya. <laughs> I've talked to guys, too, that have, you know, for alternate shot, they – one guy was planning on hitting the first shot and he got there and he's like, I can't do it. We got to switch. Like he's got, somebody else has to hit the odd shots cause they're just so nervous. Cause it's just such a different oh, atmosphere. First tee. first tee. Yeah. Well, the first tee <laughs> friends, luckily is not, I mean, you can hit an iron and yeah. then you're good to go. I mean, if it's my turn, I'll be like, Hey, listen, expect this one to go really bad and we're good. <laughs> we'll after figure that. it okay, out. Yeah. We'll figure it out. So. It's just, just <laughs> Hey, I don't know. That it's, makes it's sense. Things that go. Cool. All right, John, we'll let you out of here. Thank you so much for your time. Best of luck this week and the rest of the season, but not in the Ryder Cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me win my match. Let's just let's do that. Let's okay. Do that. You, you win your much. match, and then uh, <laughs> the U.S. retains the cup. All right. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks, John. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!